Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 19th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. Today, I'm delighted to bring you in conversation with U.S. Supreme Court scholars and co-authors of a new book on the high court entitled The Company They Keep, How Partisan Divisions Came to the Supreme Court. Those co-authors are Professors Lawrence Baum from The Ohio State University and Neil Devins from William & Mary School of Law. As Professors Baum and Devins detail in their new work, the court's nine justices are now, more than ever before, decisively split based on politics, or namely the partisan affiliations of their appointing presidents. Gone for now are the days of progressive Republican appointees tilting the court left or more conservative Democrats joining the bench's right block. Their book grapples with this new reality, its origins, and its implications. And Professor Devins and Baum also expound on an emerging theory to help explain what influences judicial voting behavior. Traditional theories view justices either as fairly independent actors seeking to advance their policy views, or more strategic actors likewise aiming towards policy ends but aware of constraints presented by other branches of government or countervailing public opinion. Baum and Devins argue that justices above all, are influenced by, as the book's title suggests, the company they keep, the elite, social, and professional circles in which the justices exist and whose regard they value. These circles formerly were fairly ideologically homogenous and leaned a bit left, but more recently, discrete, non-overlapping elite circles have emerged in substantial part due to a strengthening conservative legal movement, the authors write, and as those professional and social elites who influence the court's behavior have become more politically polar, the justices have, too, and more resolutely so, the others write, less vulnerable to the sort of leftward ideological drift that characterized past Republican appointees like, for instance, David Souter and John Paul Stevens. We'll unpack all of that with Professor Devins and Baum shortly, but first I'm happy to welcome on another scholar of the High Court, Dr. Adam Feldman. He's the founder of the Quantitative analysis site Empirical SCOTUS, on which he meticulously synthesizes the court's decisions to help illuminate just what sort of court we have at work. He, like most of us, has been wondering about the assumed rightward shift of the court, with its five Republican-appointed members now pretty clearly situated on the conservative side of the ideological spectrum. He's researched, too, whether in response to that seeming shift we might be seeing a chief justice tack a bit towards the left to keep things balanced. He's here now to talk a bit more about all of that. Dr. Feldman, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. About a month or so ago, in two or three instances, the chief justice sided with his liberal colleagues in some 5-4 close decisions in areas of death penalty law, um, criminal procedure generally, and abortion appeal. Um, and that prompted sort of what seems to be a recurrent question as to whether or not the chief either you know is more liberal than maybe we thought, or if he has drifted that direction, or if he's consciously um, tacking his jurisprudence towards the center in this moment when folks expect the court to turn right. So you looked at some of these questions just as to whether or not the court was or had been going right under John Roberts, and whether he himself had perhaps been going a bit left. And first of all, just remind us how you go about sort of determining when you code all the many decisions the court makes as to whether or not a result is conservative or a liberal result? So this is a project uh, that involves uh, many different uh, professors and and grad students uh, for what is known as the Supreme Court database. And uh, the various coders go into the cases and look at who the parties are in terms of party type. So for instance, 
um, if it's a government entity or it's a person, a person or a business. And then they, uh, the coders will look at the uh, outcome in the case and, and which side it favors. And, uh, and so we'll base the, uh, the coding decision on, on these attributes. So, for instance, in a given type of case, uh, a win for the government um, would often come out as, as a conservative uh, type of decision. Um, but that, that is going to be relative to who uh, the, the other party is in the case. And um, as to that question, you know, whether the court has turned more right, rendered more conservative decisions since John Roberts has taken the helm, um, you come down with your quantitative analysis here to say generally, no, it's been sort of a 50-50 split in terms of overall conservative liberal results. Is that right? Yeah. So the, the court has uh, um, split pretty um Pretty evenly on this, and uh, and and it's it's interesting to, uh, to to kind of track where John Roberts falls um, in, in all of the uh, decision making um, because on one hand he uh, tends to overwhelmingly side with his uh, conservative colleagues, um, but uh, but in some uh, really hot button decisions that uh, that get a, a lot of attention um, from the press. He's uh, he's moved uh, in the in the liberal direction, so he's he's somewhat um, more unpredictable, I would say, than uh, the other Republican nominees uh, that are on the court. Yeah, of course, you know the Obamacare decision from a few years comes to mind. Also, more recently, it was the Fourth Amendment Carpenter decision from last term. I think there was also a five four one, right, where he sided with his liberal yeah. colleagues. Yeah, he he uh, wrote the uh, opinion uh, in that case, uh, I believe, and. Uh, and and it was him and, and the uh, four Democrat uh, uh, nominees to the court, um, and uh, and and that almost uh, could could be seen as kind of the uh, uh, sort of a, a turning point uh, for Roberts, perhaps, where um, you know he he very seldomly was the swing vote in uh, in five four decisions uh, that that worked uh, with the uh, with the liberal justices um, and uh, and. From Carpenter, um, and subsequent to Carpenter, uh, there's there's been uh, a few of these instances. So uh, it uh, it potentially has been increasing since uh, since that that point in the last term. Also, in the last couple of years, particularly in those cases that are one vote cases, the ones that sort of generate more attention outside of the legal circles, the more socially salient ones, those have tended to go a bit more on the conservative side. Though, is that right? Uh, by and large, they definitely have, and this is uh, not surprising as the court on the balance has, has been um, conservative for uh, decades, really, um, and has only pushed farther uh, to the right um, over uh, more recent years with, uh, with some substitutions uh, for, for justices where, um, for instance, we have Alito, uh, who came in uh, when, when Justice O'Connor retired, uh, definitely pushing that seat um, to the right, um, and we have a, a few of those uh, types of, of instances. Um, also, when, when Clarence Thomas uh, came uh, to the court uh, after after uh, Justice Marshall retired, um, the uh, so the, the court itself on the balance uh, has has been conservative, and so it's not surprising to see that five four decisions um, were. Uh, have generally been going in that direction. What was somewhat surprising um, was that that last term, uh, Justice Kennedy, who 
uh, was known as the swing justice who uh, would um, sometimes uh, join the liberal colleagues uh, more so than uh, his his other uh, uh, Republican nominees uh, on the on the court. Um, he didn't join the liberals in, in uh, any one decision that came down uh, to a five four vote uh, last term. So that was that was an anomaly. Um, but uh, but the fact that the court um, tends to move in the conservative direction in those uh, types of rulings is, is not surprising. Speaking of you know justices swinging, regarding in particular the chief, um, in the instances where he does side with his liberal colleagues, as as you've analyzed, it seems to almost always be in cases where the result is liberal. So if you know the case is going towards the conservative side, he's essentially always with his conservative colleagues in the majority. And then when he does flip over to the other side, it's it's on, in instances where he's again in the majority, and the case is going that. Way um, is that fair to say, and is that to some extent do you think a function of the fact that he is the the chief justice of the court and perhaps feels um, you know it might be part of his role to be a part of the majority more often than say you know Justice Alito might feel like he needs to be in the majority. Yeah, that's I think that's a, a very uh, good point. Um, I, I see Justice uh, Roberts as a, an institutionalist at, at heart, um, and while uh, he he um, shows that uh, he, he tends to vote um, in the conservative direction. Um, I, I think he's also very cognizant about the uh, the way that the court looks both to the public and to uh, other uh, branches of the federal government. And so um, he, he takes note of that in his uh, decision-making. He takes note of that in trying to bring uh, consensus to the court um, in the uh, in 2016 uh, term before uh, Justice Gorsuch joined the court, um, and and the court was only of uh, eight members, the uh, the justices didn't decide any uh, decisions by an evenly decided vote where uh, they, they couldn't uh, go heads or tails um, in, in one direction or the other. Um, this happened a few times uh, after Scalia passed away in the uh, during the 2015 term. Um, but uh, but Justice Roberts. Um, is is uh, is a great consensus maker. Um, the uh, the the um, one I guess um, caveat to that is that uh, sometimes um, it's uh, fairly obvious that he gets pulled in the conservative direction in um, in, in very uh, ideological cases. Um, so uh, you know it's not surprising to see him in the uh, majority, uh, or was not surprising to see him in the majority, for instance, in Citizens United or uh, when he wrote the opinion for Shelby County. Uh, but it was surprising uh, when he joined the liberal justices in, uh, in the Obamacare case uh, several years ago. Um, so, so we see uh, occasional moves in different directions, but it often seems like he has the, uh, the institution of the Supreme Court, uh, at least uh, in, in uh, some focus. I wonder if, like, you know, one more thing about the chief's voting patterns. I, of course, I'm yeah. not terribly surprised in the instances where you do see a result come down and he's with his liberal cohorts. But I was surprised to see that you found in two terms recently, I think the October 2013 and 14 terms um, overall in the totality of those terms, he rendered more sort of liberal-coded cases or opinions than conservative cases overall. Is that right? Yeah, so that, that's correct. I, I, I think – um, what what happens in the way we observe the Supreme Court is uh, um, we we tend to focus on uh, a handful of cases each term um, that the the court rules on um, that are, are really politically salient matters, 
and uh, and, and those in in past terms have um, mostly gone in, in the conservative direction, um, and, and that gives uh, the impression, I, I think, that uh, the court is uh, on the balance ruling um, uh, conservatively. Uh, but almost 50 percent of the cases that the court hears year after year, uh, it decides unanimously, uh, and so. Uh, that that could be uh, in the liberal direction, the conservative direction, and that that pushes the uh, the court to be pretty even um, ideologically, uh, and and so the the balance tends to to not sway too great in in either direction, um, and so it's not entirely shocking that uh, on the balance we might see the uh, the court. Uh, rule in, in liberal direction, especially in, in recent years where we've had, uh, where, where we've been between justices for, for various points, um, in time, uh, when there was the, uh, the, the, uh, interval between Scalia and Gorsuch, um, the, the short point in time before Kavanaugh joined the court. Um, and, uh, and so those are the, the times when, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is likely trying to, to bring uh, more consensus to the court, so it didn't um, it didn't look like a partisan institution, and um, and so uh, it's it's not striking um, perhaps that it, uh, the court on the balance has moved uh, just a little bit in the liberal direction, um, but uh, the the focus on of the big cases uh, have often been uh, moves uh, that that uh, where the court has gone conservatively. Have you? in your mind, synthesized any kind of rhyme or reason to the instances in which you see um, Chief Justice go uh, either on the conservative or liberal side? Because those instances we mentioned at the top, you know, one was the death penalty appeal where he sends back down a case to Alabama to review whether or not uh, a death penalty inmate really sort of, I think, remembered the crime or had become so mentally impaired that he could not recall it any longer. Um, but then also, you know, there's a, a pretty high profile that death penalty case where he sides with the liberal block. In that instance, an uh, inmate had claimed he would suffer pretty grave pain based on a particular execution method. Um, you know, so I, I guess for folks trying to figure out, you know, what exactly the chief is is after, if he's just trying to, I don't know, go back and forth occasionally to make sure the court stays balanced, or is there some sort of clear, cohesive method? to his uh, evolving jurisprudence. Do you have any thoughts on, on that? Yeah, so I, I think his jurisprudence evolves with uh, with, with the composition of, of the court somewhat. Um, and uh, as he uh, has, has uh, seen the potential for the, the court to move right um, now, uh, especially with, with Kavanaugh filling uh, Kennedy's seat, um, he, he does play uh, the role of of moderator somewhat um, in uh, in a greater capacity than than he has uh, probably in, in the past, um, and uh, you know one one way he can do this also is by um, by either ruling narrowly in cases which uh, um, he's uh, talked about in the past uh, the importance of the judicial restraint, um, or by avoiding cases entirely. Um, so the one way that um, he might look like he's moving in the liberal direction is actually by taking uh, cases that are um, perhaps less uh, uh, um, publicly interesting um, in, in issues like uh, abortion. Um, we are going to see a gun rights case uh, possibly uh, next term, although there's been recent uh, discussion that uh, the case uh, might be moved 
uh, by the time it uh, is actually uh, should be argued by the Supreme Court. Um, but if uh, the court can avoid taking uh, some hot button issues and uh, rely on on more uh, mundane matters, uh, then then it might not you know it might not be uh, that that um, odd to see uh, Chief Justice rule along with uh, liberal colleagues. Um, and, and so I, I think he I think there's there's uh, some some strategy and uh, method to what he is uh, um, how, how he's evolving as a chief justice, and that uh, involves balancing the interests of not having the court um, overtly seem like a partisan institution. Uh, and although he uh, has shown, um, uh, especially statistically, uh, to uh, to favor voting along with his conservative colleagues. He also he modulates that by ruling uh, with with liberals in in what seems like now uh, an increasing number of uh, of instances. You know, notwithstanding perhaps having a chief a little bit more cognizant of the, of the the space to his left here now in the absence of Anthony Kennedy, we are looking at a court, and I'll get more into this with professors Devins and Baum. Uh, in just a moment, um, but we're you're looking at a court where the members are perhaps less likely than ones in the past to to cross over party lines to to cast votes. Is that fair to say? So yeah, it's it's interesting uh, that this is the first time where uh, it's likely going to be. I mean, it seems uh, pretty certain that it's going to be uh, a a court that aligns um, with uh, partisanship and ideology. So where you have the uh, the five Republicans uh, as the uh, conservative justices and the uh, four Democrats as the, the liberals, um, because in past we've we've always had some kind of uh, um, we, we've, we've had some drift. So we've had Stevens and Souter um, and even Kennedy somewhat as as uh, kind of a drifting uh, leftward uh, justice that was appointed by a Republican nominee, and uh, and now we. Most likely, uh, unless Kavanaugh is, is a shock to everybody, which he hasn't shown that he's going to be so far, are going to have uh, five uh, Republicans who are, are, are pretty solid conservative votes. Yeah, I mean, the phenomenon where the chief occasionally votes with his liberal colleagues is not something that you think sort of is tantamount to a liberal drift in the manner of, you know, a, a Studer or a Stevens or anything like that, right? No, no, no. I, I, I think he's, he's really playing... Um, his his cards uh, close to his chest, where he uh, he's very deliberate about how he moves. But um, at at heart, I mean, and when we look at at the um, kind of ten thousand foot view, um, he he's you know, overwhelmingly uh, conservative. But he, I think, he just uh, moves uh, in, and with liberals in certain cases that get uh, a lot of attention, and so that kind of helps paint the picture of him as as being more liberal. But I think. Uh, yeah, you know, when we look at like voting agreement with him and, and the the other conservatives, much stronger than uh, his agreement with uh, with the, the liberals over time. Okay, uh, just one last one. You also wrote recently a piece about uh, you know, that posed the question whether or not that newest justice that replaced Justice Kennedy, um, Brett Kavanaugh, is in fact as conservative as as folks expected. Um, so let me ask you: um, Is Justice Kavanaugh as conservative as uh, many expected? I think the answer to that is both yes and and no. Um, so the, uh, expectation, um, uh, from, from what I, I gather, uh, was that, uh, the court with, with Kavanaugh, um, replacing Kennedy 
was going to move far to the right because uh, Kennedy was the was the swing vote was the median justice, so he would often be the uh, the, the turning point uh, on whether a a, uh, a decision was going to move in the liberal or conservative direction. Um, and with Kavanaugh, who uh, who had shown um, conservative predilections and also uh, was a, a Trump nominee, uh, the expectation um, was that the court was going to shift far to the right with Kavanaugh joining. Um, and and I, I, I don't think that the rulings this term have uh, so far uh, have so far shown that that there's been a, a big shift in the right one direction. And so one of the inferences might be that Kavanaugh isn't uh, as conservative as expected. Um, we're going to see uh, what what happens um, as more than uh, or just about half of the decisions that the Supreme Court's going to render for this term um, still have have not been decided. Um, but we've seen in in, in uh, several instances that that Kavanaugh has not um, sided with uh, the, uh, the the other conservatives on the court, um, especially in uh, in a couple six three decisions where um, Thomas uh, Alito and, and Gorsuch have uh, dissented. Kavanaugh and and Roberts have been in, in the majority in uh, both the Garza case and the Aaron Liquid case uh, that were argued earlier this term. Um, so, uh, so it might be a little bit more moderate than uh, than expected. I think there's uh, still a lot to be uh, to be seen. But uh, my sense is, uh, as we have seen with uh, with two of the five four decisions, um, including the uh, the Buckley case uh, dealing with uh, the the Eighth Amendment issue of uh, extreme pain, uh, in the uh, death penalty instance um, where where uh, Kavanaugh cited with the conservative justices that, that he will most likely come down uh, with the conservatives uh, in, in the closest decisions that the court uh, makes. Uh, I don't think we're going to often see him as the swing justice uh, along with the uh, four liberals. Um, but so far he, he also has not been the conservative poster child that conservatives possibly hoped he would be uh, when he joined the court. Okay. Uh, Dr. Adam Feldman, creator of Empirical SCOTUS and founder at Optimized Legal. Adam, thanks again for being on the show. Thank you. Our next guests are co-authors of the new book, The Company They Keep, How Partisan Divisions Came to the Supreme Court. They're both Supreme Court scholars of long tenure and high esteem. They're here to talk about the historically polarized court their book describes and about the theory of judicial influence and decision-making it illuminates. First, let me welcome in Professor Neil Devins from William & Mary School of Law. Professor Devins, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. also have Lawrence Baum, Professor Emeritus at The Ohio State University. Professor Baum, welcome onto the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so gentlemen, you have uh, co-authored a new contribution to the literature on the U.S. Supreme Court and on judicial behavior specifically. It's called the company they keep, how partisan divisions came to the Supreme Court. Tell me before we get into some specific elements and, and theses from the book, just sort of an overall conceit behind it. What, Professor Devins, did you hope to explore, articulate with, with this book? There were at least a couple of things we tried to do in the book. One was, as the title suggests, explain how it came to be that today's Supreme Court is divided where the Republican justices are more conservative than all the Democratic justices, and to show that this is the first time this has ever happened in the nation's history as best we can tell. So that was one main purpose. And its second purpose was 
to, in explaining that phenomenon, talk about how the justices are influenced by their social environments, and in particular, the role of elites in shaping Supreme Court decision-making. Professor Baum, did you have any uh, thoughts on sort of the overall Kinsey question? I know you've done some research on these questions for, for many years. Well, I, I think Neil summarizes my thoughts very well uh, also. I, I've been arguing for some time that Supreme Court justices are like everybody else, that they're influenced by the people and the groups of people who are most important to them and to their personal identities. And that helped to lead us to the question of how that plays into the polarization that's occurred on the court in, in partisan terms. So as Neil says, those, those two things came together as something that we wanted to explore and probe in the book. Okay, we'll get probably spend most of our time talking about that issue of influence and the nature of what influences justices in particular, as the title of your book suggests, the intimate universe they, they uh, run in, the company they keep. But before getting to that, you know, Professor Devins, you said in your first answer that this is the first time we've had a situation where um, ideological uh, points of view and partisanship sort of line up exactly matching. The court's been around for a long time. I found that a bit surprising to learn that, okay, this is the first time we have conservative, or I'm sorry, Republican appointed justices, say, all be on one side of the ideological divide and Democratic justices all line up on the other side of the ideological divide. But in fact, this really is a first? Yes, as, as, as best we can tell. And the reason for that is that the political parties historically had had ideological diversity in ways that they don't today. So uh, the Republican Party used to have liberal Republicans, the so-called Rockefeller Republicans. The Democratic Party used to have conservatives, the Southern Democrats. And as a result, presidents in selecting uh, potential Supreme Court nominees were choosing from a broad spectrum of ideological viewpoints. And as a result, party identity and ideology uh, was not lined up the way it is today. And then on top of that, combining with uh, that phenomenon is the rise of conservative elite legal networks, in particular the Federalist Society, that tend to reinforce this ideological divide. And uh, groups like the Federal Society simply did not exist before because uh, there, there was no conservative legal network. So that's a new phenomenon that reinforces this partisan divide as well. I think Larry might want to add to what I just said, though. Well, I, I think the thing I would add is that I was as shocked as anybody uh, to find that this current period is unprecedented. I knew something about the court's recent past, and I and uh, so I was aware of the phenomenon that, that Neil has described, that, that lines on the court cut across party lines, but I would not have believed that there wasn't some period in the court's history in which partisan and ideo ideological lines coincided. It simply turned out that there hasn't been such a time. It's fascinating. So I mean, we might add uh, some concrete sort of reference points to the, the themes that you both mentioned that, you know, Previously, inside one of the two political parties, a president might have a, a broader ideological spectrum from which to choose. I mean, two of sort of the, however you want to describe it, as progressive or liberal members of the 20th century court, Earl Warren or William Brennan, they're both appointed by a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower. And then, of course, you know, more recently, we have Justice Stevens, who was, a, I believe, a, a Ford appointee, and, and, and Souter, right. 
was a, a, a Bush a one appointee. So those are sort of a couple, you know, a few instances that to clarify your point that even if we've had, you know, divided political history, this is the first time we've reached a point where really the justices sit on either side and, and don't really cross over. President Harry Truman was a Democrat and a fairly liberal Democrat, but the four justices he appointed were all pretty conservative. Uh, so this is a phenomenon that goes back a long ways, and as it turns out, uh, goes back throughout the court's uh, history. The ideological divide that we're speaking about starts in 2010 when Elena Kagan replaces uh, John Paul Stevens on the court. And part of what happens is that the Republicans don't have a deep pool of committed conservatives to draw from until really the second Bush administration. So there's a little bit of a lag in terms of the ability for uh, the conservative legal network to be sufficiently entrenched to uh, have uh, the farm team, if you will, from which Republican presidents uh, would draw sort of reliably conservative nominees. So it has taken some time. So even though Ronald Reagan and uh, the first George Bush made numerous judicial appointments, it really wasn't until the administration of the second George Bush that uh, Republican uh, Supreme Court nominees have been reliably conservative people. Professor Baum, let, let me ask you, this might be you know, parsing pretty finely, but are there meaningful differences? In, and if so, you know, what are they between a court that's you know, tilted maybe towards one ideology or, uh, as it turns out, sort of one political party's policy preferences as, say, the court was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, in the, in the era of the Warren Court? And a court like today that's also tilted, say, towards the conservative or Republican policy views. A casual court watcher might say, okay, the previous one tilted you know, liberal, this one tilts conservative, they sort of seem the same. What is important about on that previous court there being judges from both parties, you know, arrayed on either side of the political divide and that not no longer being the case? Well, that's really a great question because you're emphasizing something important which is this certainly is not the first time that the court has been divided strongly on ideological grounds. We've had that in the past as well. I think that one difference, and perhaps the most important difference, is people's perceptions of the court. When you had divisions that were ideological but not partisan, the court looked a little less political, if, if we can use that kind of vague term. But now when people look at the court, people elsewhere in government, uh, people in the country as a whole, and they see divisions that are along partisan lines, the court seems more like a political institution in the colloquial sense of the term, or more like a partisan institution in a way that wasn't true when there was a difference between ideology and party on the court. So I think it might be that the most important effect is in the way people think about the court uh, rather than in what the court itself does. Yeah, I think that's a great answer, and, and I would add to that the fact that this phenomenon has taken place means that going forward, Republican presidents are going to be under great pressure to make sure they appoint a reliable conservative, and Democratic presidents are going to be under great pressure to make sure they appoint a reliable liberal, because people have come to understood that it's a zero-sum game, and as a result, neither side is going to take any chances of appointing someone who is going to drift to the other team as opposed to uh, be a steadfast member of their team. I think, I think one other thing to add is 
that the justices' own perceptions may be affected a little bit by the fact that the ideological camps in the court uh, coincide with uh, partisan differences. Uh, this is an era where people have strong loyalties to the two parties, and the justices are not immune from that. So even though the ideological differences may not be any greater than they were in a prior era, the justices may feel a bit more of a divide among themselves uh, than they did in those earlier periods. Before diving into the, the central idea of your work, the, the nature of judicial influence and, and how they're you know, largely impacted by the communities in which they're a part, the elite uh, context in which they exist or, or care about, um, I'd like to sort of revisit some other theories that have been part of the literature thus far when it comes to judicial influence. The, the first explanation or model explaining judicial behavior, the attitudinal model. Uh, Professor Baum, could you walk me through what we're referencing here? As I understand it, we are describing, or you know, scholars who describe this model, describe something where the ju judges are pretty independent, but still act towards sort of their preferred policy preferences. Is that right? That's a very good summary, because those are the two key tenets. First, in this model, all that the justices care about is making good policy through their legal rulings. And second, they are autonomous. They're not really influenced by anybody else, uh, even their colleagues, uh, let alone people outside the court. So it's a, it's a very kind of simple model of how justices are thought to behave. And now competing model, the sort of external strategic actor model, Professor Devins, I understand this one is one where a greater amount of external influence is thought to exist. Maybe judges are still... Uh, or justices are still acting in such a way as to advance their personal policy preferences, but aware that, say, it's hard to maybe take the most direct path to them if right. overall so, popular so opinion is in the are, way? Exactly. So the justices are policy maximizers, and they need to be careful uh, under this model of uh, elected government uh, taking steps to cut back uh, on their rulings. So uh, they're concerned about potential backlash and will push the law only so far as elected government uh, will not push back against the court itself. So uh, they take you know, potential resistance into account. So it's not quite public opinion. I think it's a little bit more focus on uh, elected government uh, power to uh, limit what the court does. And on statutory interpretation cases, for example, elected government has the power to negate anything the court might do. So um, the justices uh, under this theory would be very concerned about what elected government can do, particularly in statutory cases. You know, alongside these models, your thesis comes in, in this book to sort of do a, a bit further or more complete explanation for Supreme Court judicial behavior. I suppose in, in what ways, uh, Professor Baum, have you seen in your research, um, do these other two models not fully explain how justices act? Well, I think there are two deficiencies that we would see in those models. One goes back to this fundamental matter of uh, whether the law makes any difference. And what the attitudinal and strategic models have in common is a belief that justices are motivated only by policy, not by trying to get the law right. And we would disagree with that. Uh, certainly, policy considerations are quite important to the justices. Uh, they might well be the single most important determinant of what they do. But the justices are also acting within a legal context. They're trained in the law. 
They're part of the legal community. And so policy itself can't explain everything, and we think that legal considerations have to be taken into account as well. More important for purposes of our book is the idea that the people outside the court who have the greatest influence on the justices are not the other branches of government, are not the general public, but they're political and social elites, uh, the people who are at high levels in the legal system, uh, including law professors, other judges, leading lawyers who litigate in the Supreme Court, the, the media that cover the Supreme Court, the Washington community. These are the people with whom the justices interact the most, and the people who have the greatest influence on them, we think, uh, not in some direct pressure way, but simply because these are people whose respect is most important to the justices. So we differ pretty fundamentally from both the attitudinal and strategic uh, models in believing that it's that elite community uh, that has the greatest impact on uh, the justices when they uh, make decisions. Right. And the, the only thing I think we share in common with the existing models is the notion that justices are not going to vote against their policy preferences. Some of the justices have a policy view. They, they won't take action against it just to win over uh, the elites they interact with. But at the same time, the justices will be affected by elites and their efforts to uh, win the esteem of the elites, as Larry was talking about. That's, a, as you describe it, a, a fundamentally different idea than those previous two models that we described, and, uh, and something of a nuanced one. You know, one might not expect that the nature of judicial influence to sort of depend on these elite communities that you know, are comprise unelected folks that uh, you don't you know, have much control over. The general public doesn't have much control or awareness of, perhaps, even. How did you come to you know, sort of a light upon this particular theory, Professor Baum, and tell me a bit how you sort of developed and, and tested it. Well, I, I think uh, both uh, Neil and I thought for a long time about this question, who influences the justices? And I think we both felt, and I certainly feel, that people had missed the fact that justices are human beings, and just like any other set of people, they care about how they are thought of, how they are esteemed by the people in the world around them who are important to them. And it just seemed in a logical way uh, that that would be the strongest influence on the justices. And then I think as we looked at some evidence and patterns of what the justices do, we felt that this concern with the esteem and respect of people uh, could help to explain phenomena that might not be very easy to explain otherwise. And one of the things that we did in some previous work was to look at this thesis that many conservatives have put forward, that the reason why the Supreme Court was not as conservative as it should have been after a whole series of Republican appointments from 1969 to 1991 was that to a degree, uh, justices appointed by Republican presidents were influenced by a social environment that was primarily liberal. Now, it's impossible to test that hypothesis in any precise way, but the fact that a number of justices appointed by Republican presidents moved to the left is at least consistent with it. And we think logically, and from some evidence of various types, that this is indeed one explanation of the fact that the court uh, did not move as far to the right as one would have expected given all those Republican appointments. 
with that background, what we sought to do in this book was to first develop, uh, to further develop that idea. As a you know, further development of that idea, your book describes what maybe had previously been a more homogeneous elite community or you know, elite legal environment and consensus that perhaps caused some leftward drift among Republican appointed justices. Professor Devins, it sounds like what you're describing is that those elite communities have, you know, like our overall community in, in the country, have sort of uh, bifurcated and polarized. And so now there is there is no sort of elite homogeneous community that, that uh, imparts a, a unified influence on justices, but rather two different sort of un, unconnected communities. Is that right? Uh, that's exactly right. So during the uh, heyday of the Warren Court in the 1960s, elites who were Republicans or Democrats, you know, generally supported progressive views on civil rights and uh, a range of other issues. When Roe v.ersus Wade was decided in the early 1970s, the best way of figuring out whether someone supported or opposed was not party identity, but was um, social status. Uh, and things were fairly homogeneous and, until uh, the Reagan revolution of the 1980s, which uh, brings with it uh, increasing emphasis on ideology and party identity. And over time, the elites uh, split up the way you uh, described. And uh, what we're seeing today is certainly a reflection of that change uh, in elite culture. And uh, as Larry uh, discussed earlier, what we saw with the leftward drift of uh, Republican appointees in the 70s uh, and 80s might well be tied to the orthodoxy of uh, left-leaning, center-left-leaning liberal elites uh, and the dominance of center-left-leaning elite networks at that time. Professor Baum, could you help me just unpack a a little bit more the, who we're talking about when we're talking about the elites that influence the justices? Are we talking about lawyers at high up in the Department of Justice at at white shoe firms? Are we talking about the media? Who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a lot of people, but I think that the largest number, the most important set of people are elite groups within the legal community. And we'd include with, in in that uh, category, law professors, uh, particularly the law professors who are most prominent, who interact the most with the court. We would include uh, the people who act as regular advocates uh, in the court. And, of course, there has developed a, uh, a pretty clear uh, set of specialists in Supreme Court litigation, uh, as well as other people who are high in groups like the American Bar Association, and more recently, uh, people who are part of the ideologically oriented groups in the legal profession, the most important of which is the Federal Society as a representative of conservative values in the profession. Now, beyond the legal profession, not so much the mass media as a whole, but the media that cover the Supreme Court and the reporters who cover the Supreme Court, uh, who, after all, are the most prominent reporters and reviewers of what the court does. And then more amorphous but important is simply the elite community of Washington, D.C. and its area, what uh, President Nixon would deride as the Georgetown set, with, uh, with whom uh, many of the justices interact quite frequently. So it's not a clearly defined set of people, but those are the major components of uh, the elite groups that we think are most relevant to the court. One sort of further nuanced element of this increasingly bipolar 
court, uh, Professor Devins, that you describe is that the drift towards the poles is sort of not symmetrical, that it's occurring on one side a little bit more than the other. Could you describe that to me a bit more? Right. Well, I think what has happened uh, is when the elite networks, the Georgetown uh, clubs that uh, Larry referenced just a second ago, were overwhelmingly center-left, there was a drift to center-left. And um, for those who are already center-left, there was no drift. But for those who are more moderate, so awesome drift, uh, particularly from justices, uh, Republican justices, who did not come from inside the D.C. Beltway and uh, were being exposed to these elite networks for the first time. But today, you don't see that happening because, of, as you mentioned before, the fact that the elite networks are now separate networks of conservatives and separate networks of liberals. You don't need to turn to the New York Times or the Washington Post of your conservative justice to get your news. And Justice Scalia mentioned he gave up on the Washington Post and looked towards more conservative media outlets. And as that has occurred over time, we've seen a hardening of the right. So the drift that used to occur to center-left has not uh, happened, and we instead see the conservatives sticking to their guns and staying on the right. The liberals have always been adhering to uh, center-left positions. They've not drifted to the right or or further to the left. They've always sort of stayed where they started. Uh, It's the Republican, more conservative justices that had drifted center-left before, and today they're not drifting center-left at all. And, and, And something to add to that is another important part of our narrative in the book which is uh, the patterns of appointments of justices by Republican and Democratic uh, uh, presidents. And that's where we see a difference between the two parties today, a a difference that other scholars and observers have noticed as well. Republican presidents have a very strong pressure within their party and among conservatives to make sure that they're appointing very conservative justices. And we can see that reflected in the appointment of Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. There are similar pressures on Democratic presidents, but not nearly to the same degree. And so Justice uh, Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, or before them, Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, they're all liberals, but they're not the strong liberals that we found in some past eras. In that sense, the two parties are different. They're both going to make sure that their presidents appoint people on what they see as the right side of the ideological spectrum. Uh, But it's not fully symmetrical. Uh, There's more of a push within the Republican Party to select people who are not just conservatives, but strongly conservative. This far we've been fairly descriptive. I'd like to sort of weave in a bit of a normative discussion here, too. As you're describing this phenomenon over the past few decades of the elite consensus dividing and there being sort of more counterweights on either side of the center as opposed to a more homogenous community on maybe just to the left of center. Is there anything that you view as problematic with that? It sort of sounds like, particularly if you have a more conservative viewpoint, that that's a natural development if Republican appointees go to the court and then drift to the left based on these elite networks. Maybe you think there should be some competing viewpoints that cause a, a bit more balance. You know, Professor Baum, do you have any thoughts on, I guess, some normative aspects here? Well, I think that there's nothing illegitimate about a president or people around the president wanting to ensure that Supreme Court justices uh, share their point of view to the extent that it's possible. 
obviously there are big stakes in Supreme Court decisions, primarily ideological stakes, but to a degree partisan stakes as well. So it's difficult to, to criticize, I think, uh, a development of a situation in which presidents of both parties are very careful about choosing justices and making sure they've got the right views from their party's perspective. The potential problem lies in something we talked about early in this conversation, which is public perceptions of the court. Uh, certainly, Chief Justice Roberts is very concerned with his view uh, that there's a perception of the court as partisan. And he certainly has made efforts and will continue to make efforts to try to tamp down that perception. But I think it's in terms of that perception that the greatest problems lie. If the court comes to be seen as simply a tool of one political party, then that's going to have an effect on the court. It's going to have an effect on people's uh, confidence in the political system as a whole. Yeah, and in some measure, there's very little the court can do about it. Larry and I talk in the book about the fact that the justices still adhere to norms of collegiality and norms of judicial independence, that they try to act like justices, um, and there's no reason to think that they are any less uh, lawlike uh, than their predecessors, even if uh, ideology and party are aligned. That doesn't mean that they're acting less lawlike than earlier justices, but if it turns out that the public and elected officials see them as uh, political appointees accomplishing political purposes, they may not be able to stop that perception, uh, and the court does run some risk, some legitimacy risk, particularly if some of the proposals regarding court packing the like uh, are taken seriously. That could very much undermine uh, the court's uh, institutional uh, legitimacy. I'd be curious, Professor Devens, you know, what that might look like if there is something of an erosion of the court's legitimacy. And, and, you know, the idea that the public thinks that the judges have their political viewpoints and, you know, the pejorative politicians in robes is not a new one. So, you know, is the idea that the court is worried about, is the idea that the public is worried the court's too political, you know, new? Or is it actually something that could get worse? And if it does, I mean, what do we... What does the country look like where the court is, is less, I guess, trusted or seen to be less legitimate? Uh, you know, I think this is uh, unknown territory, uh, so to speak. If each side, when they get a majority, seeks to uh, pack the court and change the number of justices and play fast and loose with the court's composition that way, or if uh, the opposition party to the president controls the Senate and simply refuses to ever confirm a justice until a uh, president of their own party uh, is in office could run havoc over the court system. And it, it's, it's unclear whether there's a strong enough belief in the courts as an institution that uh, people will stop before the breaking point or whether instead people will just go to the breaking point in order to advance their um, you know, partisan goals. So it's, it's, it's not a very pretty picture, I'm afraid to say. Yeah, P Professor Baum, as to, I guess, the the path forward and to the way in which your book maybe speaks to some of the more salient questions about the court's composition and perhaps, you know, potential changes to it, I mean, do you have thoughts on the ideas like adding justices to the court or, say, the idea that you have the, the, the balanced court of 15 where there's five from each party and then the 10 together add five more. Do you have any thoughts on how your book and, and those questions interact? Well, I, 
I think the most interesting thing about those kinds of proposals is simply that they've been made and that they're being taken quite seriously by some people. And that's a reflection of the unhappiness, primarily from Democrats, about the current state of the court. The chances that any of these things will be enacted, and some of the proposals could be enacted through legislation, some would require a constitutional amendment. Uh, The chances of enactment, though, I think are very, very small, uh, simply because even doing something that Congress clearly has the power to do of adding additional justices is likely to be viewed as illegitimate, uh, just as it was when President Franklin Roosevelt tried to do it uh, in the 1930s. But as I say, the most interesting thing is that Democrats who are unhappy about the way the court has moved, as well as both Democrats and Republicans who worry about perceptions of the court, uh, the fact that they are thinking seriously about these kinds of proposals is an indication of the kinds of uh, potential dangers uh, that Neil was talking about just a moment ago. You know, just a couple of last ones. P- Professor Devins, you know, so also looking forward to the behavior of this court, are we just sort of, we have to acquiesce to the idea that this will be a fairly you know, boring court to watch that we'll know for at least the next several years, likely, if, you know, just where everyone's going to vote, how cases are going to shake out, or are there, you know, is there any possibility of the sort of drift that happened a generation ago? Yeah, um, I I don't necessarily think there'll be drift, but I don't think the court will necessarily be boring either. I think that uh, the justices do care about their reputations as as being um, politically independent, advancing a theory of jurisprudence. And I think there will be occasional votes by conservatives like uh, Justices Thomas, uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and the liberals like Justices Kagan and Breyer, where uh, they join uh, opposite side coalitions. That will happen every term. And I think uh, the Chief Justice, separate and apart from that, as Larry noted, is very concerned about the court's legitimacy. And um, he may cast some surprising votes over time as well to um, cut back on the impression that the court is predictable in the ways you were suggesting in your question. So uh, I think that remains to be seen, but um, I would I would expect not what we had with Justice Kennedy in terms of, you know, not being able to predict the court's future, but I think things will not be as predictable as some people think they will be. Uh, Professor Baum, do you have any thoughts on that, or just uh, in terms of any continuing or further research that you'll be interested in doing on the court? Well, first of all, I think that Neil has put it very well that we're not going to have a situation that some people expect where every decision divides the justices along party lines. And in fact, the justices, and particularly Chief Justice Roberts, are going to try to minimize that. So it's going to be a kind of complicated situation. Now, one of the things that we would like to find out more about is related to this which is the limits on partisanship in the court. Congress has become a hyperpartisan body. And it's not simply that the Republicans and Democrats are divided by ideology, though they are, but the, the bitterness, the conflict that runs through Congress as a whole. Uh, we don't think that, that the Supreme Court is the same. The justices want to minimize conflict. They also care about the law. And one of the things we want to do is to explore more deeply something that we've talked about in the book, which is the differences between the the court and other political institutions, uh, differences that make it less of a partisan body uh, than we find in the executive branch in Congress. And what we're hoping to do is to be able to say something meaningful about 
both the similarities and the differences in the Supreme Court and the other branches uh, during an era of partisan polarization. Well, excellent. The, the book is The Company They Keep, How Partisan Divisions Came to the Supreme Court. Professor Neil Devins and Lawrence Baum, thanks very much for both being on the show. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's our show for April 19th, 2019. Thanks once more to all three of my great guests, Adam Feldman from Empirical SCOTUS and Optimized Legal, Lawrence Baum from The Ohio State University, and Neil Devins from William & Mary School of Law. Thanks also to my production staff here, Principal Nick Perez. So thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget that one hour of California CLE credit can easily be yours for having tuned into the podcast. You can find it by going to the Daily Journal website, dailyjournal.com. Find this podcast, the link to a short true-false test, then tender the very modest fee, and one hour of credit can be yours. I'm Brian Cardile. Before speaking to you next Friday, have a great week.